The best of quarterbacks will tell you this one simple thing. They can win every game. They can win the Super Bowl. And when they come to the press comes to him and they say, how'd you do it? If he's a good quarterback, he's going to say, you know, it's not about me. Because, like, yeah, I can throw the ball. Yeah, I can run a little bit. If I didn't have my line, I couldn't do what I was here to do. If I didn't have a good defense to keep things going when we didn't have the ball, we wouldn't be here right now. And so uh, there's a point to all this. And you see these videos on Sunday. And that's something I want you to think about is a quarterback knows the secret. And that secret is it's not about me. If you had a quarterback who went into his interview, first game out of the season, they win the game 47 to nothing. How'd you do that? And he said, well, you know, I'm so great. I throw and everybody, you know, whoever I throw it to, they automatically catch it. Whoever I hand it to just runs for a touchdown. I am just that good. The next game, they will lose 78 to nothing because you'll have offensive linemen going, there he is. It goes, it goes that same way with us, with our jobs, with our families, wherever we are, with our relationships. And so I guess that being said, I need to confess something to you all and then probably ask for forgiveness. You see, last week, and you'll find this hard to believe, I duped you a little bit. I know, I pulled one over on you. Those of you who weren't here are like, not me. <laughs> um, basically, I said something like this last week in reference to what I call the planned collision course. I said, you know, there's a planned collision course, and that's where one we're really good at is, uh, just as people. And, and how that happens is we decide on things. We decide things like, I don't deserve to be talked like that, or I don't deserve to be ignored like that. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm going to plan this out, premeditative collision. They, they left me out. Who do they think they are? They can't just get away with that. They took my seat. Look at everything I do, and they just show up and take all the credit. I said, I can't believe, and this is what we say a lot, I can't believe that at church they're they're changing stuff. Did you see the color of the carpet and 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 all these things? And and I heard people say at this point, I heard you all. You said things like, Amen. (laughs) And then I got that little look and I was like, Yeah, that's it. What does that have to do with the message for today? Well, I've been saying for this, this year so far, all this year I've been saying that we're going to be doing things differently in the next 10 years. Uh, for example, you may have noticed that we have a rocket in room B, which is now our Galaxy Kids room. Um, we've got a neat setup for our kids. Our kindergarten through fifth graders, their worship is, is something to experience. And, and what they're doing in there is really exciting, partly because the demographic around our church is families that have kids in that age group. And so invite your friends because we've actually tailored a part of our ministry to that, to that age group so that we can tell them the good news of Jesus Christ at a level where they're going to get it and with energy and excitement that hopefully will plant seeds and change their little lives. So, so we have a rocket in that room. We have stars and we have things that you would normally see maybe in your church building. We also, you may have noticed our, our projector in here, it seems a little dim. And maybe on some Sundays, the opacity doesn't seem quite right. That was, that was a word I learned last year and I've just been itching to use it in a sermon. <laughs> I don't even remember what it means except when it looks a little dim, that's the, we'll go with that's the opacity. Uh, <laughs> it's because it's getting older. Um, and we looked into the cost of things like new projectors and, and upgrades, and we realized that we could be better stewards of the finances that are entrusted to us by investing in better technology. And it turns out that better technology is actually cheaper. Can I get an amen? Because you don't hear that often. Um, 
we're excited because I want to let you know in the next few weeks, we're going to be getting some upgrades to our auditorium. And so as you come in, you're going to see some different things. We're going to be getting a new computer. We're going to be getting some rather large flat screen TVs. And, and throughout the year, we're going to be making some other changes with lighting and things like that. Now, I share this with you because I want you to know something. I want you to know that we're not just changing for the sake of change because we could update the computer back there and we could put a new bulb in the projector or get a new projector. And other than, than a better quality picture, none of you would even know that we made that change. But here's the thing. When you walk in in a couple weeks and there's a couple of 60 plus inch TVs hanging on the wall, you're going to notice that a little bit more. And we've been working towards this change for a couple of months now. And, and one of the things I've learned is as we've made sure that we had all these things in order, including the financial part and that things are going the way they should. So to the leadership, to the elders and to the staff, this stuff is already going to be old hat by the time it gets on the wall. But to you guys, you're going to leave here one Sunday and the next Sunday you're going to walk in and go, oh, they bought some TVs. <laughs> They're big. I could spend that money somewhere else. Maybe something you would think on. Or maybe you'll think, well, they must be making budget. They don't need our offering now. They got those TVs and who knows what else they're getting. And Fat Rock probably got a raise and a new car. Uh, not yet, but you know. <laughs> Stop it. You may think on different things. And, and here's, here's the whole point of that. And this is why all that fits into this series, and especially today on it, it's not about me. Because I think that we could all learn to serve God better if we could only learn what David knew as a young man. Because I think one of the things that factored into David being a man after God's own heart was that even during the early years of his, what I call his pre-kingship, before he was actually king, he'd been anointed, but then it was a long time before he became king. In his pre-kingship, when he was with Jonathan and Saul, there was a time when Saul was angry at David. And David knew that it wasn't about him. He was able to avoid collision with Saul on so many levels because he knew the battle was the Lord's. It's not about me was something that David lived. I wanted to begin this message. I wanted to compare David to a cat, not because I hate cats, okay? But it's because cats have nine lives is what people say. And I got to looking at the story of David and it, I thought, well, it wouldn't be appropriate for that story because he appears to have more lives than just nine. In just two chapters, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, Saul tries to kill David at least 12 times. I was like, whoa, talk about hatred. Talk, talk about a, a collision course. Uh, Saul, 1 Samuel 18, verse 11, Saul throws a spear at David twice. Missed both times. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 13, Saul makes David commander of a thousand people, a thousand men, hoping that he'll go into battle and be killed. And that didn't happen. He came back victorious. Um, in in uh, 1 Samuel 18, 17, Mirab is offered, that's one of Saul's daughters, he's all, is offered to, to David if he will fight the Lord's battle like a valiant man. Uh, 1820, Michael is offered, another one of Saul's daughters, to David for a hundred Philistines foreskins. Um, now, men don't give those up easy, you know. And David presents him with 200. It was bad news for the Philistines. But, but that was a trick. Saul was hoping that David would get killed because he went out with just a small group of men. All right. In, in um, 1 Samuel 19.1, Saul orders Jonathan and his servants to kill David. Just outright. Just done with him. 19.10, um, he tries to throw a spear at David again. Three times he throws a spear at David. 
In uh, 1 Samuel 19, 11, Saul sends messengers to David's house with a message of death. They were, they were sent there to kill him. In, in 1918, not the year, but in the verses, uh, chapter 19, verse 18, Saul sends three groups of men to Naoth to take David, and then he shows up himself. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Saul not only continues to try to put David to death, but he throws his spear at Jonathan, his own son, for defending David. In chapter 22, Saul kills Ahimelech and his father's entire household except for one. And then he annihilates those living in Nob, the city of the priests. You know, I read all that. And like I said, I stopped at 12, but it goes on. There's more. I couldn't help but think that if Saul had worked as hard at killing Israel's enemies like the Philistines, as he did killing his faithful servants like David and Jonathan and Ahimelech, if Saul could have understood as David did at this time, that it's not about me. Not only would they have had, uh, they wouldn't have had as many collisions, but he would have been a great military leader and he would have been an amazing king. But somewhere in his twisted state of mind, Saul's best allies are considered his enemies and his enemies become his allies because he reached out to the people that, that were his enemy to help him put David to death. Saul becomes a very paranoid man. He, he fears his most faithful servant, David, who will not put his king to death even when he has the perfect opportunity to do so. Saul seeks counsel, or excuse me, he, first he seeks to conceal his animosity. He, he tries to hide his jealousy and his hatred and his discontent about David. But it ends with the first verse of chapter 19. And from that point on, Saul becomes openly intent on killing David. And that's why I just referenced all those verses. And anyone that he thinks may support or defend David. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. Thank you for your examples. I thank you for the example of a man like David, who had many opportunities or many reasons to, to dislike King Saul. Many, what we would call here today, justifiable reasons to defend himself, to lash back, to, to strike back at King Saul. Yet he, he realized that the battle was yours and that it wasn't about him. And I pray, Lord, as we look into your scriptures, we look into your word, that that would just resonate in our hearts today, that, that whatever struggles we may be going through, whatever issues we may be dealing with in life, we will understand that it may not be about us. And I pray that we'll also depend on you to help bring us through that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24. That's what we're actually going to pick up today. <clears throat> And, and I, I kind of gave you that brief synopsis in hopes that this week you'll go back and read 1 Samuel 18 up through 22, 23. Get an idea of, of what Saul felt for David. Uh, because I really, in that little Reader's Digest version, that condensed version there, I didn't really give justice to, to how Saul treated David and how the Bible talks about that. So I want to encourage you to read up on that this week and then you'll really understand what I'm going to share with you today on 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, I'm, I'm assuming they're whispering. Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you. 
Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Verse 8. Now afterward, David rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. Verse 12, may the Lord's judge, may the Lord judge between me, you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea. David's putting himself as low as he possibly can. The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. Verse 18, you have declared today that you have, gone, you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king. Saul's finally understanding the anointing of David. He says, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Up to this point, Saul had spent roughly four years hunting and chasing after David. Four years of of making alliances with his enemies as he searched for one man. There are a few things that we can learn from David and Saul here. The first one is from David. We need to develop the ability to make sure that we don't make issues or disagreements about ourselves. We're going to have disagreements. We're not going to agree about everything. But just because I disagree with you about something doesn't necessarily mean that I hate you or that I don't like you as a person. Okay? So we need to make sure that that when there's an issue, as you work through it, as you work through those disagreements, make sure that we don't make them about ourselves. We need to try to see other people's points of view also. We'll get to that in a second. Number two, we need to admit when we've been self-centered. 
That's something we're going to learn from Saul. You see, because that's, that's how Saul was. For four years, the only thing he thought about was revenge on David. And David hadn't done anything except what Saul asked him to do. If you've been working through an issue with someone, I hope it doesn't take you four years to come to a place of resolution. I hope you can get there quicker than what Saul and David did and, and with a lot less violence. Because in that pursuit of David, a lot of people lost their lives. That self-centeredness makes us forget about the casualties sometimes. So don't develop the self-centered stubbornness that Saul developed. We can all agree that his kingdom and all aspects of his life would have been better attended to by him if he had put the effort into his kingdom that he put into chasing and hunting down David. Third thing that we can learn, that we learn from David, is this one. Is we don't like it. I don't think we can... It's one of those things we don't want to say we can do. It's a hard one. When you're at a disagreement with somebody, when you're at that collision place, find a way to support the other person. I'll let that settle in. Find the way to support the other person. What, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. How can you expect me to support someone after what they did to me? Do you know what they said about me? But th they took credit for my actions on this project. It's not about you. It was huge. It was a big project. The whole monumental change thing was my idea, and they took credit for it. It was my concept. It's not about you. You want me to support them? They got promoted over me because they took my idea. It's not about you. But do you know what they're saying about me at school? It's not about you. But everybody's making fun of me because of it. It's not about you. But some of my friends, they won't even talk to me right now. It's okay. It's not about you. I understand. Here's the thing, Christian. When we go seeking revenge on something or for something, we think it's about us being wronged. But in reality, the way that we respond to a collision is about Christ. We are the called out ones, called by God to live a different life, to run the day-to-day -day operations of this life through our Jesus filter and to act accordingly. That's what we're called to do. Parents, no more thinking about ourselves. The downside with all this great technology that we have is as adults, we think we're entitled to make up for all the things we didn't get as kids. You know what I'm talking about. Because some of you adults have better toys than most of the kids do. We try to make up for it. We think we're entitled to just come home and play Halo for the whole weekend in our man caves and avoid our family because, hey, we worked hard this week and it's my way to decompress. I know grown men and women that have spent so much time on online gaming that it's cost them their families. Talk about a collision course. If you have kids, if you have chosen to have kids, young people, if you choose to have kids later in life, after you get married, you have to know that your life is no longer about what you want. It's about their needs. If you want to avoid a painful collision, you need to make sure that you are putting the needs of your kids and your family far above your own needs. King Saul didn't do that. He didn't do that. He wasn't even focused on his family for four years. King Saul threatened his own son because of David. He didn't put his family first. He put his family at risk because his own selfish, misguided needs of revenge and hatred. But you know what? David, while hiding in a cave with his men, when Saul came into the cave to go to the bathroom, and his men said to him, 
This is the day of which the Lord said to you, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to it as it seems good to you. David cut off the edge of his robe. But then he said, he persuades his men and he didn't allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Oh, if we could learn that much self-control with our tongues. We cut so much more than the edge of a robe when we start lashing out at people when we think we're hurt or that we think we have the right to defend ourselves sometimes. Why, why was David upset? Why do you think that, that it weighed heavy on his heart when he had that tassel of the robe in his hand? Saul had been trying to kill him for four years. Let's be honest. Don't you think there was a part of David that thought, man, I'd love to just take him out real quick. But David realized that Saul is the, is the Lord's anointed. So David's hands are tied. But he can't resist sneaking up and symbolically killing Saul by cutting off the edge of his robe because that's really what it was. Feels good. But who is David really cutting off? He was cutting off God. You see, David's no more given to resisting temptation than we are. And, and here's his opportunity to kill Saul and he can't resist. In his heart, he indeed killed Saul. Remember what the Lord said in Matthew 5, 27 about adultery? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If you savor the lust in your mind, you have already committed adultery or fornication and you need to confess it before God. Repent and put it away. You do not congratulate yourself that you refrained from the physical act. And this is where David is. Because I really think David wanted to kill Saul. And in his own mind, he did. And it tasted delicious. Whoosh, I could have had him right there. Verse 5 says, it came about afterward. After he had cut off the edge of Saul's garment, David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the edge of Saul's robe. David realizes he sinned against God. He knows in his heart that Saul is God's anointed and that God has allowed him to stay on the throne this long because God chose to do so. Not because God hated David, but because God chose to allow Saul to continue leading. And David realizes it's not just about him. He says, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. He's convicted about stretching out his hand against Saul. And David persuades his men. And then that, that version, the, the, the word there literally means tore apart his men. Because they were ready to go after Saul. These men, they really wanted to kill him. These were people in distress. They were bitter of Saul. People who were being hounded by him. And, and even previous to this, they were like misfits in Saul's kingdom. These were the people that David was with. They had no reason. They had no love loss for Saul, so to speak. They were not nice people. And they all had something against him. Man, with these words, it must have taken quite a bit of persuasion. And it must have been done in very whispered tones, like I said, because they're here in the back of a cave while they're having this conversation and King Saul is doing his business. But David did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And what did David do? By cutting off Saul's robe, he killed Saul in his mind. He stretched out his hand against the Lord's anointed. And then when his conscience got to him, this is the best part of the whole story. He did what? He, he said, for the Lord's sake, I can't do this. 
He took a positive step of repentance. He realized right there at that moment he went too far. Now, it wasn't just a little confession. Sorry, Lord, it was a positive step of repentance. Don't ever kid yourself that when 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins, that it means just a little obligatory, sorry, Lord, and then you go back to to going on and repeating your offense again. Confess literally means to stay with God, to see it exactly as God sees it, and to call it what God calls it, sin. Then God forgives you, and you are cleansed. It requires true repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind. David, at this moment, made a positive step of repentance here. He realized where his heart was, that it wasn't just about cutting off a part of his robe, but it was about reaching out against the Lord's anointed. And he made a positive step of repentance, and he lay down before King Saul. As we come to our response time today, I hope that you too will have the conviction that David had to realize it's, it's not always about me. Don't stretch out your hand to do anything but serve. Christ stretched out his hand. On the night that he was betrayed, he stretched out his hands and he washed the feet of those who would betray him, those who would refuse him, those who would refuse even knowing him. He stretched out his hand and he washed the feet of those who would scatter as he would endure a mock trial and a crucifixion. And on that night, he chose to serve them, saying to these men, take and eat. This bread is my body given for you. Here, drink. This juice is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then after much torture and abuse, he chose to stretch out his hands again on the cross where he gave his life for our sins. The king of kings, Jesus himself even said, it's not about me because it was about us. He did that for us so that we would have the opportunity to know his father and to spend eternity in heaven. Today, during our response time, as as you come and have communion, if you, like David, need to repent of something so that you can be what God has called you to be, the elders are here to pray with you. Maybe maybe for you, it's a time to submit to the Lord in baptism. And that's what you need to do today to really make that statement that it's not about me. Please respond. Think on these things. As we take a moment, examine yourself against Scripture, and when you're ready, please respond by coming and and having communion with us. Will you pray with me? Father God, the things we learn from your word, I pray that you'll show us in this moment how we can better reflect you. As we take time and pick up this cracker and this juice, let this be something that doesn't just have a passing moment for today, but let it be a remembrance for us. A a remembrance of what your son has done for us, but a celebration knowing that he has risen again, that he's in heaven preparing a place for us. I pray that we'll examine ourselves, not against one another, but against your word, against the reflection of your son. And we will strive to be more like him. I pray that you'll forgive us for the things we've done this week that have caused others to stumble or have, have put a wedge or of any kind of separation between us and you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.